about the church. Do you love the church? Do you serve the church? When you see the church, what do you see? Jesus loves his church. Um, so last week we talked through um, wh- what is the story of the Bible? What, what are we engaging with? Jesus loves his church. Um, it's a really a series on, about why we do what we do. Why do we, why do we engage with church? Why do we do this every single week? What is the church to you? Um, really, how should you relate to it? How should you grow with us and all of that? So we're talking through vision over the next few weeks and all that that entails. Um, last week, we talked about what is the story? What is the story of the Bible? and Where do we find ourselves in that as the church? And really what we, what we said was Genesis 1 says to you that you were created by God to participate with him in the ongoing ordering of creation. You say, Brandon, that's a lot of mess. What does that mean? It means that what you're doing is you're a part of God's plan for the world. He created the world, and he asked you to continue creating the world, which means that you are, you are responsible as a human being to participate, to create culture, to create structures that help give glory to God and give joy to man. All right? So through your work, you're creating structures that give God glory and give man glory joy. So that's, that's what we do. That's what we're a part of. And what he does is he takes all of us and he puts us together in this thing called the church. And this thing that called the church, and, and he helps us, he gives us this idea that says, as we continue to grow together, as we continue to do life together as the church, what we're doing is we're establishing on the, on the earth a new way to live life. We're establishing a new way to create, a new way to engage with the world. We're establishing uh, cultures and, and structures that help people flourish. Like that should be the primary job of a church is to help humanity flourish. When you were growing up, how many times did you hear that one? The Bible is asking us to help other people enjoy life. And so today, we really want to figure out, well, what is the church then? What is the church? If, if God has asked us to do that, if God has given us that responsibility as his church, what is the church? What, what does the church look like? How does it function? How does it engage? We're going to be breaking all that down in the next few weeks, but what is that? And so today, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, and, and in really Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, we'll be flipping around, but Matthew 5, really, to break this down. Um, and, and, and here's the deal. 80% of Christians believe that they can meaningful, meaningfully grow in God without being connected to a local church. 80% of people who believe in Jesus 
believe that they can grow in faith without being connected to a local church. The problem with that is the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible actually teaches that it's near impossible for you to grow into all that you should become without being connected to a local church. The Bible teaches the direct opposite. And so it's really important for us to figure out, okay, well, if that's the truth, what, what's going on and what is the church? So Matthew chapter 5, Jesus finds himself on the side of the mountain with people who are following him, and he begins to say this. He says this, and he opened, uh, he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so we're going to see three things mainly today about what the church is. And number one, Number one, the church um, is blessed. We are lives changed by Christ. Okay, so he breaks this down. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. How many of you have heard this verse before? Come on, I'm right here. Yep, I can see you. How many have heard that verse before? And we say, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so we have to say, okay, God, I want to be blessed, so I got to be poor in spirit, right? Blessed was this idea in the first century. When they called someone blessed, they were envied. They lived life so well that they were to be envied on how they're living life. How many people have you, have you saw and you're like, man, I just wish I had their life? Blessed, that's blessed. They're fortunate. In fact, like, if you remember the old Napoleon Dynamite, it's like, lucky, Ugh. <laughs> So blessed. The problem is this, is that he's saying blessed are the poor in spirit. In the first century, you didn't want to be poor in spirit. You didn't want to be poor in spirit. Poor in spirit was like this, this, this nasty part of life where they looked at you. If you were poor in spirit, they looked at you and said, I don't want to be anything like you. And Jesus shows up and says, blessed are you. And so what Jesus does is he establishes this whole new way of how to look at the world. He establishes a new definition for success. He establishes a new definition for accomplishment. And what the Beatitudes are, that's what these are called, what the Beatitudes are, are are primarily announcements about God. Okay, when you were growing up or when you were in church, you heard these most likely as requirements for how to live life in God's kingdom. 
What these are are announcements about who God is because it's in Christ that any of this is made possible. It's in Christ that any of this is made possible. So when you look at blessed are the poor in spirit, it means humility. And we get humility because Jesus gave us righteousness. Are we tracking on that? Like the reason you can be poor in spirit is not because of you, it's because of Jesus. And so when he says blessed are the poor in spirit, you can be poor in spirit, you can be humble because Christ is the man, you're not. You can live life with a sense of reality because Jesus is actually the one that creates this for us. And so he, he goes on and he says, blessed are those who mourn, that you can get care. And we are comforted because Jesus was afflicted. We're comforted because Jesus is afflicted. We can be meek because Jesus took the offense for us. Meekness is this, I have this sense of, of, I have this sense of not being a doormat, but I'm not losing my emotional uh, intelligence either. Like, you're not going to step on me, but I'm also not going to scream at you. Meekness is this sense of emotional control in the midst of all sorts of chaos. He says, you can be meek because Jesus took your affliction for you. He took your offense when he was on the cross. He says, you can, be, you, can, you can hunger and thirst for justice and for righteousness. You can hunger and thirst for the world to be made right because it's Jesus who is emptied who can make it possible now for the world to be made right. He's saying, man, all these are announcements about God. Like, you can have mercy on people because he gave you mercy. And they announce things to God, but what what ends up happening is we read these as uh, requirements of how to live. And so we try and we strive to be humble and caring and meek and just and and merciful and, and, and pure. And what ends up happening is we give up because we just can't do that. Who can be pure and meek every single day of their life? Who doesn't? I, I mean, I just was at a soccer game this morning. Let me tell you, meekness was not my strong suit this morning. <laughs> Who can do that? Who can do that? And so what these become are invitations of how to live a whole new way of life. They're not requirements for how to live, but they're invitations for what your life could look like if you live life with Jesus. That this is a whole new way of life. This is a way of life that creates in us joy. It creates within us glory for God. It creates within us a way that we can look back and say, you are blessed. And so the church are individuals who have had their lives changed by Christ. They're individuals who have had their lives changed by Christ where this new way of life characterizes them not because they try really hard but because they walk with Jesus and when they walk with Jesus this gets created within them this gets created within you as you continue to live life with God because the the problem of the human heart gang listen to listen to me the problem of the human heart is this cancer that says me first I have to be comfortable I have to have joy I have to be happy, it's mine, it's me, it's about me. And it's this thing that permeates every single area of our life. Me first, me first, me first. I got to get mine, I got to get mine, I got to get joy, I got to get this, I got to get success, I got to get all of it. it. It permeates every single area and it creates 
fractures in our relationships. It creates, it creates a, a reverse effect on how we, to, how, how we are to work. It's me first. In the gospel, the first thing that you do when you start to become a Christian is you realize that it's not about what I've done wrong or what I do right, but it's really about every area of my life is permeated with this cancerous idea that I need to be first. And so you repent and you have faith. Repentance is this, I get it. I'm a self-centered person. I think I'm the creator of my own life. I think I'm the creator of my own life. And I realize that, God, you are the creator and I'm the creation. I follow you. And we have faith that we don't justify ourselves. We don't, we don't have this sense of righteousness by ourselves. It's by Jesus, that we have this sense of righteousness. So that separation between creator and creation allows us to have faith that Jesus is the one that puts it all together, not us. Are we tracking on that this morning? Like that's, that's, a, that's, that's the basis idea of all that we're doing here, that we're a life changed by Christ simply because we acknowledge that I'm a mess by myself, and I need to understand that there's a creator that has the design to live life, and when I live his design, I'm going to live the best life possible. And his design is this new way to live life, this humility, this care, this meekness, but we don't just sit there and create this for ourselves simply because we wake up and say, I'm going to be a humble person, because the person who says, I'm humble, is not humble. You wake up and you say, I need to walk with God, and he's going to create within me a sense of humility because he's the point, not me. He's the center, not me. And so he creates within us this new way to live life, and what he does is he takes this cancerous idea that it's me first, and he puts it into remission. Although it's not fully gone, we're going to spend our whole life really sorting out the difference between who he is and who I am. But he creates within us a sense of dependency upon him that says, I need you because you're the point, not me. We're lives changed by Christ. So blessed, when you look at someone, you say blessed, it's because we're, we have what Jesus has offered to us and it's this whole new way to live life according to his original design. So if you have a church, right, that's saying, I, you have a group of people, right, so 100 or so in here that say, I, I, I am not going to put me first. I'm, I, I get it. I have had this experience with Christ where now he's the creator, I'm the creation, I'm following him, he's the Lord, I'm not. He's the point, I'm not. He's central, I'm not central. When you put... Jesus at the center, and you start to put a system of people around that central idea, you have what is called the church. Lives, not life, not my life, but lives changed by Christ, all group of people focusing on this new way to live life, that there's a whole new way. My self-centeredness is going to screw it up from time to time, but Jesus is going to continue to shape this within me. He's going to shape this humility, this care, this meekness, this justice, this mercy, this purity, this idea to make peace. He's going to create that within me as I walk with him throughout my day. 
And what he does is he puts us into what is called the church, a city within a, a, a city. And so number two, you have blessed, lives changed by Christ. Number two, you have a city, a new community. Now watch, Ephesians chapter 2 is going to talk about this transition here. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, Therefore, he's talking about all that Christ has done. Because of all that Christ has done, remember that one time you, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise. All he's saying is you were outside, everyone else was inside, okay? Having no hope, because you were there, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Are we tracking on that? You were once far, now you're brought near. How are you brought near? By the blood of Jesus. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in this, his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. So he's saying you had two groups of people, outsiders and insiders. And the way that you move from outside to inside was through a set of laws and requirements, and one of them, men, was circumcision. Dear God. And you start moving through from outside to inside based off these requirements, and what he's saying is that's gone. What Jesus did is through his life, death, and resurrection breaks this down and allows all people to exist within him solely by the fact that you have repented and have faith in him. And he says, and then he continues to say this, there's, new, there's two, one new man in place of two, so making peace. And you might reconcile to us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing all this hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So he, he, what he did is he preaches peace to you who are far away, those of you that had lives that were crazy. Some of you are sitting here, in here today, you remember just a year, five years ago, and you say, man, I was so far off, but Christ brought me near. And some of you, you were near. You grew up in church, and you just didn't know what faith was. You grew up in church. Maybe you did all the right things. Maybe you felt justified because of all the right things that you did. And Jesus was saying, and Paul's saying, no, no, that's not it. And even then, in the midst, in the midst, he needed to save you from the fact that you thought you were good by yourself. So he's preaching peace to you who are far off, peace to you who are near. And for through him, we both have access in the spirit of the Father. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I love that. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Okay, listen. So two groups of people. You move, you move from one to the other by a set of requirements, and one of them is circumcision. Thank God they got rid of that. And what they do is it puts us all together through the faith in Jesus. What creates all of this, what all of this is possible is, our, is the gospel, the fact that you were a mess and Jesus made you whole. 
if you don't believe that you were a mess and Jesus made you whole, you're going to come here for all sorts of different reasons. You're going to come here to feel good about yourself, but you're not going to come here to become more like Christ. You're going to be connected to a church because you feel good, not because you want to grow in faith. What keeps us together is not not the fact that we are all good by ourselves, but that we're all weak in Jesus. In his strength makes us strong. And he says, when you do that, when Jesus is the center, like the cornerstone of faith, when Jesus is the cornerstone of this system, the whole structure builds up together into what is whole and well. Are we tracking this morning, church? So he says the whole structure will grow. So now we're in a structure, a city within a city, a town within a town, a village within a village. In New England, a plantation within a, forget it. You are in a group of people that are living a whole new way of life. He says that you're a city, a whole new community because the gospel changes everything. And so we can't get this messed up, though, with a club, with a country club, with any sort of club, with any, any other idea. This is not a, a club, but it's a community. A club is based off agreeable thoughts, stamps, stamp club. You like stamps? You get to be in. Does the stamp club care about how you spend your money? Only if you're buying stamps, right? Does the stamp club care about what you're doing in life? No. A community, a community of people is something that changes everything. Your whole life is affected by a community of people because what you're doing is you're living your life a whole new way. Stamp club doesn't do that. The soccer club doesn't do that. It's not a club. It's a community of people. You're a city, a town. And it creates an entirely new way of life. It creates an entirely new way to see the world. You're a brand new community. What Ephesians 2 calls you the new humanity. How awesome is that? What's the, like, how, like, the vision of that is incredible. You're a, a one new humanity. And there's different ways that this community works than a, a typical club would work. If you were to, and it's really important that we understand the difference between what a human community is and what a spiritual community is. A human community, it's based off your desire and satisfaction. I'm going to get mine. I'm going to get me. And you come in here as a consumer. And really what a spiritual community is, is family. I'm going to come in to be with you. And there's a vast difference there. And when we go from time to time, we go from season to season, and we don't allow Jesus to shape us, slowly over time, what this place was once a family, it could become a place for you to conquer. It could be a place for you to rise in leadership and a place for you to desire these new gifts and strengths that, that make you feel better. And it's all about satisfaction. 
He said, no, spiritual community is really about family. It's this agape love, this self-sacrificing, self-serving, I'm going to lay myself down so that you can be lifted up. That's completely different. He's saying that the human community is, is based off darkness and spiritual community based off light. Human communities, they're based off control. How can I politically move my agenda to, so that it creates within this community life? A spiritual community is based off service. My agenda doesn't matter. Jesus' agenda matters. Are we, are we tracking on that? Because listen, listen, guys, churches can slowly become human communities. All we do is sing songs about Jesus. A church can become a very expensive human community when all we do is we sing songs about Jesus and we get up really early after football games. A human community is based off honor. I want to get the award. Spiritual community is based off humility, man. I don't care who sees me. I just want Jesus to be glorified and I want you to be served. Human communities are based off experience. And so you begin to see leaders based off their, their credentials, based off their experience, based off who they are. Are they successful? Have they done great work? Have they done all this? I, wow, I can't believe. Look at all of their resume. Spiritual community is based off the word of God. And you begin to look at people not based off resume, but based off calling, based off what God's doing in them, based off the call to, for development. A leader in a church is a vastly different person than a leader in a human community. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. We'll talk about structure, really. What's an elder? What's a volunteer? What, what, are, what are all these people that do these things? And so there's one based off experience, based off that. Human community is based off human governance. Spiritual community based off spiritual governance. Holy, the Holy Spirit governs, and it's up to the job of the church leaders to discern what the Spirit is saying. And trust me, we can quickly find out if what we're doing is based off our own discernment, based off our own governance versus the discernment of the Spirit. It's two vastly different ways that the spiritual community is made up. And we grow together. He says, when Jesus is the cornerstone of the church, the whole structure grows up in faith so that we can be, what is point number three, salt and light. He says, you are blessed. Lives change by Christ, empowered to live a whole new way of life. And when you do that, when he changes you, your experience with the gospel, he puts you with other people called the church, which is like a city within a city, a town within a town, a village within a village. And it's a community, not a club. So that there can be an end in sight. We are salt and light a counterculture for the common good, that we're salt and light. Okay, so, so you say, why do we come here every single week? We gather together to be with each other so that he, we can become more like Christ and ultimately be a city on a hill that casts off light and produces salt in the world. And you're like, that sounds weird. What is that? Salt and light, we're a counterculture for the common good. 
And so what we see here in Matthew chapter 5 is that he introduces an illustration. He says that you are light, you are salt. If you put a city on top of a hill, in, the, in this first century, it produces so much light because it's so dark in the first century. When, when night fell, it was dark. It's not like here where you can see like five miles down Route 1 because of all the street lights and car lights. That's not how it worked. You go into the middle of the desert and you put a city in the desert, you put up a bunch of lamps and everything's going to lit up. You'll be able to see that city for miles. And he's saying the city, the, base, this, the, the basis of how this city functions is salt and light. It's a counterculture. Again, this, this idea, this humility and meekness and justice and care and all that Jesus introduced in Matthew 5 in, in the Beatitudes that's going to produce within you a completely different way to live life. You're going to look completely different. Things that matter to the culture are not going to matter as much to you because you have a different end game. You have a different goal. Your goal is salt and light, not to be the best dressed, to be the best, most successful. Your job is not to be the one that by all things everything surrounds on. Your job is not to produce the most honor in your life. Your job is to be salt and light for a greater purpose, for a greater person. Your gifts, your talents, your joy, everything rolls up into the glory of God in the ultimate joy of man, not your own satisfaction. It's counterculture for the common good. And so we begin to ask this, well, how do we, how do we be salt and light? How do we do this? Well, the first thing we have to understand is that salt and light is going to evoke both animosity in us and attraction. Salt and light are going to produce both animosity and attraction. So what, what do I mean by that? Animosity meaning when you pour salt in a wound, what happens? Woo! Oh, my gosh. No, there's, there's, there's this, this understanding of, 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 of stinging. It stings. It doesn't feel good. But at the same time, he says that you are the salt of the earth. You're the tasty part of the world. And so there's attraction there. You make life taste better. But at the same time, you produce this cleansing agent that pushes back decay. When they would take salt in the first century, they'd rub it into meat so that it would push back the elements of decay. And so they're pushing all of this back. And so not only are we attractive in the sense that we create taste, like we create enjoyment for the world, we also are part of this thing where we're pushing back the decay of sin and the decay of the world based off the way that we're living life, based off our heart now surrendered to God. Light, light is the concept in the Bible. It's all about truth. When you turn on the light, it's all about getting the truth of the Bible. Not only is light a good thing, when there's darkness and you turn on a light, it, fear can be dispelled. Like my, my four-year-old loves the fact that we could turn his little Crayola crayon nightlight on, man, and everything is better. Light makes everything better at times. You don't want the thing, you know, like you, you, the things that grow in the dark are things that aren't good. You lift up a rock, do you want to eat anything that's under, I mean, unless you're Bear grills or something, like you, you want to be lifting anything that's in, eating anything in there? 
the things that grow in the dark aren't things to be celebrated most of the time. Truth and light, they, they, they ex- but they, not only do they celebrate, but they expose. When you t- when the flashlight of a cop, hello, right? When those lights turn on, you're driving on 95, you're like, oh, okay. What does that feel like? And so there's a con- confrontation a lot of times that light will create. And so we are both... We will attract both animosity and attraction. That's what salt and light will evoke in the culture. And and this isn't just a city uh, or a group of people that you just come here because you like the music and the preaching. Oh, you know, I want to go to that church because the pastor wears jeans. Or I don't want to go to that church because the pastor wears jeans. I don't know, whatever, wherever you fall on that. It's a group of people that you're connected to, a family of people that are helping you become more like Christ with the end goal of being salt and light in a community of people around us. That's what the Bible teaches the church. That's what the church is. And so Jesus, the gospel changes everything, literally it changes everything. The Spirit empowers you to live this, life, this whole new way of life that's going to put you in a community that produces salt and light. Now, what the Bible teaches here is that you can't do that by yourself. Can you be a city of one? It's a pretty boring city and not much happening. You can't be a city of one. He's not saying that, man. You, you do, do your devos in the morning by yourself and everything's good. Most of the time, and not to be crazy here, but most of the time, you know where like, people who have started cults started? by themselves at the kitchen table where they had an idea. You know, our Bible is written by, 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 our Bible references thousands of people written by over 50. A lot of people who start ideas, they write their Bibles behind closed doors and then they present them to the world and expect everyone to live them that way. That's not how Jesus gave us the faith. That's not how Jesus gave us faith. When Jesus gave us the Bible, he did it in the lives of people. Stories, real people like you and me. It's easy to look at Paul and Peter and all these folks as just these angelic, like some other place, some other time. No, he did it from the lives of people. He creates this story that allows us to find ourselves in the story and create this new way of life. There's salt and light. And so there's a few questions to ask when you want to be salt and light. Man, you want to do this. So, okay, I want to do this. I want to be salt and light in the world. I want to be a part of a community, a city on a hill that has light, that creates salt. And there's really four questions that I, I want you to ask when you want to do this. Number one, you walk into a culture, you work into your workplace, you walk into the coffee shop, you walk into Dunks, whatever you want to do, wherever you're at. You ask these four questions. What is right? What can I celebrate? Church, if if you can't celebrate what is right, nobody wants to be with you. No one wants to hang out with you. You got to celebrate what is right. And if you're not hanging out with anyone, maybe that's why. What is right? What are you celebrating? One of the best things in the world that the gospel allows us to do is celebrate what is right in the world because we believe that God created it. 
when we watch news channels and we think, oh, these jerks. What is right that you can celebrate within it? That's what salt and light will do. It creates this ability to celebrate. Man, I stink at this. My personality makeup is to find out what is wrong, not to find out what is right. My wife will tell you this one. (laughs) Celebration is something that God allows us to do because God ultimately created what is good. Number two, what is wrong? Correction. Not only do we celebrate, but light and salt, they also create this ability to understand that that's wrong and that has to stop. That is not the way God originally intended this world to be. And so we don't sit passively allowing things to happen that are simply a result of sin and decay. We say, no, 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 that's got to stop. That's not the way God designed the world to be. Number three is clarity. What is confusing? The word of God produces clarity in a way for culture that allows us to understand what is right, what is good, that what we can celebrate. There's clarity based off what Jesus is teaching us to do. When our culture begins to shift and our culture begins to change, there's clarity in the word of God. What should be celebrated? What should be corrected? What, unfortunately, what this is happening is, is, is a lot of times we're taking truth and we're replacing it with love. When in all reality, the Bible teaches that love is the tension between grace and truth. And so within the scriptures, you can find this ability to love people, give them grace, and offer them the truth of Christ. And so the word of God allows us the, 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 the framework, the design that God had in mind that, that gives us the clarity to know what we can celebrate. And when we have clarity about what we can celebrate, man, we celebrate, don't we? And when we correct, we need to correct. And then lastly, with all of that working together, we say, okay, I'm celebrating, we need to correct, we got clarity, we need to create. With, if you're doing the first three without the fourth, all you are is a cynical person that, just, that knows, how to, knows how to pick things apart but doesn't know how to institute something that, that gives glory to God. You know how to, to critique and break down, but you don't know how to offer to build up. Think if you would do this in your marriage this week. Celebrate what is right correct what is wrong, get clarity from the scriptures, and then create something that glorifies God. What what if you did that in your finances this week? What if you did that in your workplace for other people this week? What if you found someone that you could celebrate and you could help them see what is not right, give them, offer them some clarity, and then help them create a structure that gives them flourishing, that gives them joy, that gives glory to God? That's how we can be salt and light. That happens one person at a time. It happens when you are interacting with your vendors at work. That's when salt and light comes out. 
It happens when you are working in the midst of your, your clubs, in the midst of your play. It happens when you're simply just moving from person to person. What I love about salt and light is that perhaps your boss will say, I don't believe what you believe, but I want to hire more people like you. Maybe it's your, your child when your child starts to date. God help us all, right? And you say, you know what? I, you know, I, the, the thing that connects me to you is, is that your character is strong, that you have a different way to live life. I want my kid to be with your kid. I watched my son interact with his friends this week. I love if you've ever had that opportunity um, and you watch your kids in his natural elements, like you, when you're clearly the intruder. Have you ever been there? I watched my son interact with people in a way that just welled me up with joy. I didn't teach him any of that. I just think if I taught him that, it probably looked a lot different. But I was telling him on the way home, I said, buddy, I am so proud of you. You live a life of just, of just of being calm. You're not an anxious kid. You're not trying hard to seek people's attention. You're just enjoying life. And watching him do that was so awesome to celebrate him. A lot of times I offer him what is wrong and I correct. But he's asking us to enjoy life. He's asking us to do that. If you're not enjoying life, you're doing it wrong. And it, what, what ends up happening is you, you walk through this together. Your life is changed by Christ. You're placed in a group of people that is the city on the hill, that is the light in the darkness. And you're, what you do is you dissipate and you disperse into all that is salt and light. You permeate at like yeast throughout the bread and you move throughout the culture and you move throughout creation simply doing all that ask, God asks us to do being the salt and light that he created. This does mean, he says this, I mean, Matthew 5, he says, he says that this will draw upon you persecution. Not persecution because you're being a jerk, seriously, but persecution because you're making the decision that no one else is making. If all you're doing is calling out what needs to be corrected, that's not salt and light, that's just not being nice. but it will draw upon you persecution. So a lot of times what we do is we move through life just trying not to be noticed. And that is being, a comp, being someone for the common good, but that's not being counterculture. And sometimes we just move through life and we're just calling out all that's wrong. And that's counterculture, but that's not for the common good. What we are is we're a counterculture of people changed by Christ, living a new way of life, and we are sent into the world as salt and light to be for the common good, to help other people enjoy life in a way uh, that produces, that, that provides for their needs, that engages their hearts and stretches their minds. God, let us be that type of person. We got a video for you that's going to be sort of an illustration of how this works if you're doing this in your workplace or doing this in your uh, family. There's just a simple illustration for how we can be salt and light throughout the world. Our mission is pretty simple. It's on earth as it is in heaven. 
Through architecture, we're seeking to structure our world to reflect our Christian values. How can we reflect the fact that we're Christians in what we do? Architecture is all around us. We spend the vast majority of our times in buildings. When architecture is not done well, I think that people suffer. Right now we're looking at the design uh, of the houses on, on these two lots. With each project, we start with the client's core mission. And from that, we develop intentions. How can we, at each level, reinforce what we know to be Christian principles? Love thy neighbor as thyself is an obvious one. And so how can we design spaces that allow people to be neighborly um, as opposed to being more isolated? So if there was a spot there, or there was something that everybody could gather at. Outdoor grill. Mm -hmm. Outdoor grill or a playscape for the kids or something. Yeah. You know? To me, I think it's super important to plan that out and understand what you're doing. If you're not thinking about what you're doing, then you, know, you start thinking about yourself and not thinking from your deepest beliefs. So. If you think about it with a lot of intentionality, then you can start to like realize what kind of world we're actually manifesting and the structure of the way that gives glory to God and helps people live better lives. We're on stainless panel all the way up. Do your one foot seam behind the counter. Yeah. yeah. Typically, the relationship between an architect and contractor is very adversarial, where the contractor is trying to from the architect's perspective, get it done as cheaply as possible and as quickly as possible. And the architect's trying to, from the contractor's perspective, be a prima donna and doesn't know anything about how buildings actually go together. Can we nip off the ends of those bolts so that we can get that piece thinner? Well, what we're gonna do is basically take the nuts off, put the metal on, wash it back on. Oh, okay. So we'll see the nuts and washers you through. See the nuts and washers. As a believer, uh, I understand that the contractor is a child of God and that I need to try to move away from that adversarial relationship. If, if they haven't done it yet, I'd love to have those bolts not visible and come out over them. Hey, we might double up half-inch plywood. That'd be better because if it's blocked I represent the, way, the owner and I need to guide the owner in an equitable way to make sure that the contractor is treated fairly. Uh, we have to be careful not to put the sticks and bricks before the people. Architecture is a profession that, that can a lot of times prey upon uh, the younger professionals. From the beginning we said anything that we're going to do for ourselves, we're going to treat our employees the same way. We insist on paying our uh, employees well, and paying them a living wage and giving them all the benefits they need to live a good life outside of the office. So if that means they get double the vacation time than a normal architect at their level, that's what we do. If it means they get full medical and dental, we do that as well. Sometimes that comes to the detriment of ourselves as principals. We may have to scrimp a little bit on our own side in order to make that happen, but it's just something that God put on our hearts. It's worked out so far, so. When a project's done, it's always very exciting to see it for the first time and to see people interacting in the project, people walking around and experiencing the spaces that were six months ago just a line drawing on a pad of paper. Man, that's awesome. I think families are loving it. Uh, obviously, 
great design, great building. It's going to be an incredible atmosphere at night. I'm just incredible. We want families to have a chance to be together. We want kids to have a chance to have fun and get some exercise. I hope that that's something that goes to the greater common good. At the end of each project, if we can ask ourselves, is this a little bit more Christ-like, then I think that we've achieved what we're trying to. Man, we believe that, don't we? There's nothing that I pray more. I pray for you guys that you would be lives changed by Christ. That you'd be people that are engaging with the world. And one of the major ways that we show this, guys, is that we are baptized. One of the major ways that we show that we're a part of a community like this is that we're, we're fully baptized. Baptism and, and immersion is what we practice up here at the church, and it's it's, it's a way that says to everyone that I'm, I'm in. I'm all in. I'm going public. I have faith in Christ. I have a changed life that he's changing my heart. He's changing who I am. And the Bible says it's the first piece, the first step in obedience to following Christ. And today, if you haven't been baptized, we want to do that. In a month or so, we're going to be having a baptism service. And we're going to be doing that together. And so today, what I want you to do is if you haven't done this, if you haven't said I'm all into God's way of life, I'm all into who he is, I'm all into the church, I want you to go see the next steps booth, and I want you to sign up for baptism. I want you to sign up for baptism so that we can all be salt and light together. Amen. And Jesus, we love you. And God, we want to be about what you're about. We want your heart, not just ours. God, we want to take our heart and align them with yours. God, help us see the world the way that you do. Help us live this whole new way of life that you've invited us into. Help us live our lives with you. God, help us be committed to this group of people called the church, the city within a city. God, this counterculture for the common good. Help us be a part of your church, the church that you created, that you died for, that you call your bride. Help us see that. In your awesome name, amen. Church, we love you. Have a great, great, great week. We'll see you next time.